0: open to our passage yet again. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I'm going to read the whole passage, but today we're going to focus on verses 6 through 8 and verse 14. The focus will be on verses 6 through 8 and 14. We're in part three of our of a five-part series to open up the new year on what is the vision of our church? What does New Hope Church stand for? And in part one, we talked about the gospel. Well, the gospel is the word about the word that became flesh. About the word who was with God, the word who is God, who became flesh so that we may have life. Part two, yes, last week I talked about how the gospel is more than law. is more than the law that Jesus had to come because Moses was not enough. And that he didn't come just so that we could have the law and fulfill the law. And that the law will be fulfilled in him, but that we would become children. And I talked about that last week. It's something more to be a child of God than to have the law fulfilled in our place. And today I'm going to talk about mission. i would like to talk about what is missional. What does it mean to be in mission? What is our church's mission? And what does it mean to live missionally? So um, let me read the passage. John chapter 1, verse 1, this is the word of God. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's a remarkable set of uh, verses. Let Let me pray for today's message. Lord, it is just so normal in our culture to be backwards. Um, We think that mission is for special people who want to go off and do some special thing. But actually, Lord, to lead a rich life, we must lead a life that is missional down to the core. And I pray, Lord, you would use my lips today to speak this word, and you would plant this seed into our church that mission wouldn't be considered some form of extra credit or only for the special holy people But to to all who are called born of God to be children of God, we are called to the mission of witness. I pray you would convict us. It wouldn't just be a word that goes to our head, but you would convict us of your heart by your spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, As I typically do in three parts, part one, I'm going to call What is Worthy of Your Life? Hmm? It's a question I want to raise. What is worthy of your life? Part two, I'm going to call incarnational servanthood. I'm going to talk about that. The mission of witness involves what I'm going to call incarnational servanthood. And part three, the life of eternal worth. A life that has eternal worth. Let me talk about part one. What is worthy of your life? Um, you know, you, you, Most of you wake up uh, regularly, when I meet people here in the Silicon Valley, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a refrain you hear: "I'm so busy, I'm so busy." <laughs> Some of you are intensely busy, um, especially those of you who have young children. <laughs> uh, those of you who have, who maybe were both um, the husband and the wife works, husband and the wife works, and you have young children, you know that if 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 you're married. Both of you work full-time, and especially if you have young children. If you have children at all, you'll, you, Okay, that's just a lot. Right there, you already have a lot on your plate. I mean, you, your plate is already over full, probably. You're feeling that your life is intensely busy. But maybe some of you aren't even that. You're, you're, single. <laughs> you're single, and you have a lot of friends, and you have a lot of places you want to go, and people you want to see, and TV shows you want to watch. Um, uh, my family, we hate, hate, hate watching commercials. So this little piece of technology, called the DVR, we are—we, I mean, we, I was a very early adopter to the DVR technology, and now that's it. My children, they just can't tolerate commercials, and you know I like it that way, all right? But um, I have crazy number of shows on that DVR, and we have—I uh, don't know. I think there are like 75 lists of programs. Some of them aren't just one program. If you go through, because you have like my children's cartoons, and there's like 20 of those episodes, so that's just one. That only counts for one, by the way, Okay. Um, And on our DVR, we have a list of 75 things. And of course, that comes up to a crazy number of hundreds of hours of programming, and there's no way I'm going to get through that thing. And so even if I just want to, that's just my TV. That's just TV. and that's a TV that I think is actually possibly worth watching. Okay, <laughs> That's the, the TV that is possibly worth watching. Um, and of course there's thousands and thousands of hours of TV that's not worth watching, okay? including the commercials. What is worthy of your time, your energy, of your life? I talked about this at the end of last year. Um, in, the, in the final Sunday of the year, I talked about how we only have the years. A year is 365.25 days. And you, and you don't have a lot of them, quite frankly. Those of you who are young, you're thinking, like, I have a lot of these. Actually, you don't. And I, and I, and I urge you to count your days and to count your time. But today, I'm asking you, you, you only have so much of these 365.25s left. And, and I and I mentioned how my wife, even though she looks really young, how she's at halftime. <laughs> she only has so, only you know half of she's already used up half of her three hundred and sixty five point two fives. Hopefully, you know, thankfully, she'll go to an old age. Um, but we talk about this. What is worthy of your life? And there's an important question that I, every person who wants to live and we're not even just talking about I believe in God okay apart from whether you believe in God there's a the question of what is the worthy life and let me one of the things I want to present to you today is you must have mission in your life your life must have some purpose and mission besides I'm going to be happy your purpose in life isn't I'm going to make myself happy it can't, that's not good enough your purpose in life isn't going to, I'm going to fulfill myself. That isn't good enough. If that's all you're going to do in your life, let me tell you, you're, going to lead, you're not going to lead a rich and worthy life. If that's all you're going to do in life, you're actually going to lead a rather sad and, quite frankly, shallow and selfish life. And the longer you lead the life that is really all about you, and about making yourself happy and fulfilling yourself, the more and more you'll begin to see there's something actually missing. Maybe some of you are already there. Some of you are already there. You've been li- leading this life. But it's this is a hard thing. I'm, I'm saying something which should be just completely obvious, but in our culture it's not obvious. Because what we take if you, if you turn on the software, if your life is like a piece of, like it's like a computer, turn on the software, bang, you know, the, there's a default mode. The default mode in our life, in, in our culture, is this. The purpose of my life is for me to be happy, to make myself happy, and, or at least maybe the handful of other people around me to be happy, and to fulfill my life, whatever that is. I'm not even quite sure what that's supposed to mean, but I've got to find out what that is and then to fulfill it. Um, it says right here, it says right here, um, well, actually, before I get to that, let, let, me, um, let me say it in a couple of different ways. Uh, I've been thinking about how I could share this at the beginning of this message, um, and I, I want to I I cite to you two people, two men, both wiser than me, uh, who have gone far with the Lord, and they both have, have a certain kind of a way of talking about this. One is Martin Luther, one of the most famous pastors in all of history. And he talks about a description of sin, which I don't think most people have have heard before. And he says, what is sin? One way of talking about sin, most of you know that sin is a breaking of God's laws, and that's absolutely right. God has these, it's this, be like this, don't be like this. This is right, this is wrong. We know that if you break those things in one sense, we know that that's a definition of, of sin, But Luther put it a little bit differently. He said, sin is the condition of the soul being curved in on itself. That's the way he put it. Sin is, in Latin, the word is incurvatus, of the incurvatus of the soul. Sin isn't just something you do. Sin is something you are. Sin is something you're mired in. Sin is the brokenness of your very person, of our person, and our culture. We think there's something missing, there's something lacking, and our and our self is like needs to be be it's it's not it's not full, so it needs to be fulfilled. But as long as your focus is on the self being in, he's saying it's actually because what Luther did is he read Genesis. And in Genesis, he realized before Adam and Eve fell, before the human, human uh, race fell, literally the way Genesis described it is God would walk around in the garden. They were naked. And they were utterly free with one another. And God would walk around in the garden. And every single day they would wake up and their heart would just be poured out to God. Every single beauty that was around them, they knew it was it's like a piece of, you see that piece? You see that apple? You see that bird? You see the sunset? I love you. I love you. I'm glorious, and I pour my gloriousness into you because I love you. And they would just pour themselves back. And then when they fell, they fell in on themselves because this glorious God that they could see every day and drink from every day and respond to every day, he wasn't. he couldn't be seen. He was lost from them. And so then what did their soul do? Their souls turned to themselves. And in fact, it was, so, it was so bad, you can see this even in Genesis, they didn't even just turn away from God, they turned away from each other. And so one, it's one of the, the effects of the fall, right after they fell, then all of a sudden they felt naked, and they began to hide from one another. And we can see this right into you know one of you really you are I, "I can't find love and I can't find marriage," and, and all these it's right there from the fall. It comes from the incurvatus of your soul. Hmm? Now let me give you a second. let me take you to a second man. A second man I want you to cite. I'm going I'm to read a couple quotes. Um, I was thinking about how to talk about this. What is purpose in your life? Is purpose in your life to fulfill yourself and to make yourself happy? And there's a, there's a the, 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 currently the most famous pastor in the world wrote this book called The Purpose Driven Life. And I think what he did was he pastored for a certain number of years. And he, re, I mean, he didn't write a lot of books. Rick Warren's not really a book writing kind of guy, right? He didn't write a lot of books. And he pastored, and he pastures in a pretty well to do neighborhood in Orange County. And he pastored all these different people. And you realize they don't know what to do with their life. So he wrote this book of devotions called The Purpose-Driven Life. And this book is crazy. I mean, it's talk about hitting a nerve. It has been translated, I mean, in so many different languages. It's apparently the number two bestseller in the world after the Bible. You know that? That's, that's a good way to go. He wrote two books. And the second book he wrote became the number two bestseller in the world. That's Dude, that's pretty good. And I think that's a guy you might want to listen to, okay? And um, so here's some of the things he says in Purpose Driven Life. Um, let me just give you a couple of his nuggets. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. How about that? That's a, that's a right? The purpose of your life is far greater than your family. Your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions—not just modest dreams and ambitions, like I want a nice little house and pay off my mortgage and have two point two kids and two point two cards—that's we would consider that. He said, "No, it's actually the purpose of your life is even bigger than your wildest ambitions, even your biggest dreams." Hmm? If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, it must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. So I want to start. I'll give you another one. Um, this, I just found this funny. So this, I wasn't planning this, up, but this is just a bonus. Okay, guys? All right. This is, my, this is Rick Warren. It is impossible to do anything peop, everything people want you to do. A number of you are pushed and pulled and you feel busy in your life because a lot of different people are pulling on your time one thing is, it's impossible to do everything people want you to do, so stop trying. You have just enough time to do God's will. So stop being so busy trying to do everybody else's will. You have just enough time to do God's will. If you can't get it all done, it means you're trying to do more than God intended you to do. Or, possibly you're just watching too much TV. (laughs) I I thought about that, and I was thinking about Mm, hours and hours on my DVR. Maybe I should kill my DVR, okay? It's uh, <laughs> a piece of repentance. My wife might get really mad at me if I do that, okay? My kids will get really mad because they hate commercials, okay? Um, let me give you one more. When you fully comprehend that there's more to life than just here and now, and you realize that life is just preparation for eternity, you will begin to live differently. Let me a little say, a little something about that. Most of us in our time, we think of life as 75 or 80, or if you're lucky, 90 years. I actually don't care to live till 90, so it's fine with me, okay? Um, But that's how most of you think. Most of us think. That's also why we're worried about youth. You start getting embarrassed to drive a minivan. I'm 40 years old, therefore, if I drive a minivan, that means my life is over. Isn't that sad? I'm 40 years old and I drive a minivan, therefore my life is over. Let me tell you, okay, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody who, who doesn't want to drive a minivan, but let me tell you, if that is an attitude or if, have, if that's a bias that you have, that's a really sad way of thinking about life. That means you feel like, you feel that the hourglass is ticking down <laughs> and this is all your life is, this is all you got. You got your 80 years and oh, dang it, it sucks when I hit halftime because then I might get a minivan. That's really pathetic, quite frankly. But it's common. And But the way Rick Warren puts it is, your life is a preparation for eternity. Your life is supposed to be eternal, forever. So 80 years is actually a preparation. You're in the preparatory point. Right? It's not in, the, in the all of it. You're in the preparatory mode. And as soon as you start to understand that, you don't start thinking, I only have 80 years and all all the scarcity of every single moment, I have to get every little thing out of every single second. You don't. Mm. Um, Rick Warren, you will start living in the light of eternity. That's relevant for today. If you do not live in the light of eternity, let me tell you, you live in the darkness of worrying that when you hit 40, your life is over. This passage talks about how there's a word, and the word shines in the darkness. And if your life is about 80 years, you live in darkness. You will live in the light of eternity. And that will color how you handle every relationship, task, and circumstance. Suddenly, many activities, goals, and even problems that seem so important will appear trivial, petty, and unworthy of your intention. The closer you live to God, the smaller everything else appears if you guys like some of these quotes pick up the book uh millions and millions of other people seem to have been blessed by this book uh the purpose driven it's, it's it's a series of devotionals actually it's like a it's a one-a-day kind of deal right um let, let's look at the passage uh john you're some of you're like okay come on pastor you're supposed to be a bible preacher and you haven't you haven't hit the bible verse six um in verse 6, it it's describes, it's, it's on, it starts talking about a word that was before there was anything. And we're talking about, obviously we're talking about Jesus. But then he has this little, this, it's kind of like this interruption, almost this little excursus. And in verse 6, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And it's really simple. Some of you are thinking, well, isn't that just about John? No. Today, what I want to tell you is, if you want a little piece of the secret of leading a worthy life, of leading a rich life, to lead a life as, as, uh, as, as Rick Warren would say, in the light of eternity, you must take your cues right here from John. John the Baptist. He came as a witness To bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Look, this is what our church stands for. A church just can't be a place where they have the right ideas and where the people are nice. And on Sunday, they go through these little pieces of rituals that they call worship. And then when they get together, they all know each other. And church is sort of like Cheers where everybody knows your name. And everybody likes you, and you like everybody else. If that's the case, then church is a social club. Church is a clique. Church is a holy huddle. These are all the different words. Church is, it, it starts becoming more about exclusion, not about invitation. Church then actually starts to hide the light. Because as long as people begin to see church as a set of people that are religious that are good, that have the right answers, that have the right doctrine, that all like each other, that are all comfortable with each other, then church isn't really being church. Church isn't living according to the light. To live according to the light is to shine. To live according to the light is to point to the light. The light is not us. Do you notice how he puts it? He is a witness. He is a witness because he's seen something. That's all a witness is. A witness is, I have seen something. <laughs> and let me tell you what that thing I've seen. A witness is, hey, there was an alleged crime. You were there. Will you please get up on the stand and tell us what you saw? We didn't ask you to prosecute. We didn't ask you to defend. We didn't ask you to pay for anything. We didn't ask you to build the building. Just tell us what you saw. That was John's calling to say, I have seen something that other people don't know. That is, This guy, he is the light of the world. And that's what John goes on to say. That his sandals, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That in him, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins. He is witnessing. He is the witness to what you've seen. And through that, through him, people would come to believe. That's 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 what the passage says. Look, most people... If they want to know about salvation, they, they can do it just as easily. This, literally, they can go on on, the, uh, on on an app. They can crack open John chapter 1. And John chapter 1 will say it about as bluntly as you can. If you want to get even more blunt, you get to John chapter 3. It gets really blunt after that. John chapter 3 says, "God For God so loved the world, he sent his only son, That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. One of the most famous verses ever. But then you know that right next to it says, but those who don't believe, they're already condemned. It gets mean, actually. John chapter 3 makes it really explicit. If anyone wants to know where salvation comes, they, they can just read it themselves. But you know, that's not how they come to believe. You know how they come to believe? They come to believe through the witness. That's how they come to believe. How does the world come to begin to even consider that there is a real salvation, that there's a real light that is shining into the darkness? Because they meet a set of people and they seem to be living in a light. And then when you ask them, how come your life is weird? How come your marriage looks joyful when my marriage looks terrible? How come you're happy to give your money away I never give my money away. <laughs> but you are not only, so you go to church, you pay for church, <laughs> you pay for some guy to come talk at you every Sunday. That's weird. And then you, you give up your vacation time to go to a place where people are poor, and then you sacrifice more of your money to help the people who are poor. Why would you do that? And you're happy about it. That's weird. Why would you do that? And and those kinds of things, you know, maybe if you just sit down with them and say, "Hey, do you know that that you're not saved and that before God you're condemned?" They might they might be really angry to hear that message, but when they see something else, there's a peace, that there's a joy, there's a generosity, how about there's a forgiveness? I hate my dad. But isn't your your dad's not any better than my dad, but you say you've forgiven your dad and you've been reconciled with your dad, but didn't you tell me that your father was abusive? Well, my father was abusive and I hate him. But your father was abusive and you've forgiven him? What are you talking about? See, what are we talking about there? These are all witness. It's part of the witness. It's a witness to the light. That's what... That's what the world needs from the church. That's what the world needs from us. And let me tell you a little other secret. That's what you need from you. <laughs> it's odd. What you need for your life to become full and rich is to lead the life of a mission of witness. And it's a strange thing. If you actually look in the Bible, look at John the Baptist's life. In modern standards, you're thinking, I don't know if i want to live that life. He was poor. He lived out in the wilderness. He ate bugs. He ate locusts and wild honey, according to the Bible. He was imprisoned, and then he ultimately died because he was beheaded. Great, pastor. That's the life I want to lead. Right? I'm going to, I'm going to let me just say a little something to you now. I'm not trying to attract you to say, all right, let's go out and live out in the wilderness. That's not, I'm not, let's all go be a bunch of monks. That's not what I'm saying. I'm going to say this right now, and then before I move on to part two of my message. The Bible says that of those born, of those born of the children of man, Jesus says that there's no one greater than John. It's incredible. There's no one greater than John the Baptist. When we get to see the whole life of John the Baptist, in other words, the eternity, of which he lived his preparatory portion, when we go meet him, I'm going to bet you this. I'll bet you. He will not regret anything. And when we look at the, all the people that are in heaven, and many, of course, even all the people that are in hell, and then we're going to assess them in eternity, John the Baptist is not going to be low on that list. John the Baptist is going to be very, very high on that lived an incredibly worthy and rich life, despite the fact that Gosh, well, he lived a hard life. Let me go to part two of my message, all right? In part two of my message, let me take you to verse 14. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This verse, verse 14, this verse I just gave you... (laughs) um, i put this to you um this verse has changed the world this verse continues to change the world in this verse is literally a world of wisdom because what there's a what this verse teaches us is how to do the mission what does the mission look like and let me put it this way Um, Why do people, why are people incapable of seeing the glory? That's what people ultimately need. There's something so compelling and so worthwhile that if they were to see the glory, they too would give up, they wouldn't just give up Sunday mornings, they would give up their vacation times, they would sacrifice of their money, they would be willing to die. That's how glorious it is. But how come people can't see this? And let me just let me put it a little um, simply, because the fact is, every culture is built on unbelief. Every culture. And everybody has the blinkers and blinders of your culture. Every culture is built upon the wisdom of how we as man, of everything we could put on, not built upon God, every culture is built on unbelief. And every habit of every fallen person is built on unbelief. And so in order for the Lord, and this is, the Lord showed us how mission should happen. How the gospel is going to see, break people to see the glory. The Lord, there was the word who was with God, who is God. In him is life, in him is light. He's glorious. But in order for him, for us to see it, you know what he did? He did. The Word became flesh. The Word became man. He broke into our world. He broke into our culture. He walked in the midst of our culture so that we could see it. We could see it in our culture. And so I'm saying it to you in various different kinds of ways. If the church is really going to let the gospel be seen, there is no getting across that we must cross culture. We must go into the mind of different cultures, see how do they see the world, and then we must let Jesus be seen in the way they see the world. That's, that's, the, that's the core. That's what it means that the word goes into the flesh. The word goes into the world. And I want, I want to point this out in two ways. One, Jesus is the ultimate cross-cultural immigrant. It's very relevant to our church. Jesus is the ultimate cross-cultural immigrant. He lived in another land, heaven, okay? It had a different culture. There was no sin there, and everybody loved one another, and there was utter justice and mercy. And then he went to another land where all the patterns are different. Everybody's selfish. The natural mode is to hate God. People do not live for that which is beautiful and glorious, And he came to dwell in this place. Cross-cultural. Immigrant. And it's very relevant right here in our church. A lot of times people think, okay, this is an immigrant church. Okay, that's that's why, you know, it it seems kind of sad, right? Because it's not quite American, but, you know, and this is America. But the fact is, the USA... It's a very cross-cultural country. It's very pluralist. But you know what, we don't, what we're losing? It's out of the pluribus, we're trying to build an, a unum, e pluribus unum. That's the dream of America. But you know what? We don't, have the plur, we don't have a unity. And part of the reason we don't have a unity is because everybody just says, I just want my culture, what's, what works for me, and you stay in what works for you. But even within the immigrant church, the immigrant church has to learn the gospel the deepest. Because in the immigrant church, we must learn what Christ has done. We must cross the culture to let the gospel shine in any culture. And that has to be the mission of this church. And you guys can feel this thing. On any, any given Sunday, you can feel this thing. It's right here across this hallway. There is a world of flesh over there but the word must cross into the world over there, into the flesh over there, and then there's a wor- world, of flesh over here. The word must become into the flesh over here. Um, I'm thinking all this week about how to how to make this come across. A number of you guys understand this, uh, um, and and uh, and how do you illustrate this thing? Right. I heard a podcast this week. Um, one of the podcasts I like to listen to is the Planet Money Podcast NPR. Have you guys listen to the Planet Money Podcast? Ah, one other person. One other person is very cool. You're cool. <laughs> the rest of you are not cool, okay? Because you have not discovered the Pla- Planet Money Podcast. Um, and it's all free. Uh, it's, just, it's right there. You just have it put out right there on your podcast. And there's an episode that I listen to Called it's hard to do good, right? And here is here is the drama that's in the it's a uh, that they were talking about. This is this is a, they're not they're not talking about God. <laughs> what they were talking about is this. So uh, 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 not long ago, there was there was a devastating earthquake in Haiti, and then the world you know found out. The world turned its attention toward Haiti, and we found out that Haiti is a desperately poor and dysfunctional country. Found this out, right? Well, many of us might know, but people began to go to Haiti and saw the tremendous poverty that was there. And so they did a story from a school, which wasn't in a school, building. it was actually in a church. It was in this little one-room church. And the school was so poor, there weren't desks. They didn't have proper books. The teacher was teaching, and you have all these poor kids sitting in the pews of this church. And as people heard this story, they, their heart in America was like, "Oh, I want to help. I want to make a difference." And you see what's happening there? People can see there's brokenness and hurt in this world, and they want to go and make a difference in it. And so they go, "I want to go there, or "I want to help this thing out." So you know what people start doing? Just by hearing. They, no, don't, the, the podcast didn't ask for money. They just told the story about this desperately poor school that meets in a church in this dirt poor place in Haiti. And so people just started sending money into the program. And they gathered that money, and they gave it to the person who's the principal and owner of the school. And, and it turned out to be $3,000. And for this guy, this was a fortune. He was like, $3,000? Oh my goodness. This is money that we're giving so you can get desks and books and your children can do better off. And he said, if I have $3,000, I'm not going to buy desks and books. I'm going to build a whole new building. That's what he thought he could do. And so news came out that he was going to build a whole new building. And then about a year later, people wanted to find out that whatever happened to the money that I sent in, did they build the building? So they went down, back to the school, visited, and found out that you know, just across the street or across the dirt path or whatever, from the church, they were trying to build the school. And there was no building a year later. There was just kind of like a foundation. The school wasn't even operating anymore. There's nobody there. It's just a foundation. And then the, they report once again. The money went there, and there's no school. And people are like, well, that's sad. That's, that didn't work out. And so one of the guys listening to the report, he was, he's, a, he's a guy named Tim. And Tim is a general contractor from Texas. And what he does is he builds McMansions. That's what this guy does. You can just imagine kind of like what he's like. Uh, there's a lot of McMansions being built in America. And you guys know what a McMansion is, right? It's like a, it's, it's a house, but it's, it's, it's a ridiculously big house. It's like a 5,000 square foot house you know, that, that most, most people, the vast majority of people don't need. Okay? Actually, I don't think anybody needs. Okay? But uh, that's what this guy does for a living. He builds McMansions. And so you can imagine he's pretty well off. He's regularly building houses for rich people who, don't, who have more money than they need and more space than they need and more luxury than they need. And so he hears the story about, he's like, you know what? I'm a general contractor. I know how to build things. I can go down there and I can help build that school. I can do this. Do so you know what he did? He did it. He flies down to Haiti, <laughs> finds the school or what was supposed to be the school. And he decides it's going to be his mission to embark on building this school. And he starts to do this. And, that's what, and this is what the episode's about, about this guy, Tim. And the woman who's doing the reporting, her name is Caitlin Kenny, she says, so you would think he knows how to build the school. He, he, he puts it up. You know, he's got all the, the smart. He's got all the experience he's got all the engineering and he knows how to procure everything and put it all together and he's going to happen, and then, and then the kids will be better off, right? And he's going to have all this success in doing a real good and making a difference in the world, right? And then she says, but it's funny. When you talk to Tim, he doesn't sound like a man who feels successful. When you talk to Tim, he, uh, he sounds really kind of despondent and he sounds very discouraged and he talks like this. He goes, you know what? After coming here, I have concluded that the problem is us. The problem is us. And then, and then Caitlin goes, what do you mean? What are you, what are you talking about that? So then he starts telling a little bit of his story. And he goes, here's just, just some of the details. I came down here, and, and just like a lot of general contractors, I, you know, I thought, oh, we could do this with $3,000, because you know, materials are down here are real cheap, right? Labor's really cheap. And then he realized that whenever they try to build the they just gather the locals around, and then they just try to like, do it with their hands and so forth. He goes, okay, we can't do it that way. I'm going to go get the materials. So then he did some research and found out Haiti's so poor, they don't have the materials that he wants to use. He has to import them from the Dominican Republic. So then the price went from 3000 to 60000 right? So then when he goes, okay, now i got the materials. Wait a second, I can't just use the local labor, the, the physical labor. I need some people who actually know how to can build the way I know how to build. Okay, so oh, that can't be sixty thousand. The price just went up to one hundred thousand. Where's that money he goes? Oh, but I can do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna set up a nonprofit, and then I'm gonna raise the money in America, and that's what they did. He got a team together, got some friends together, and they raised hundred thousand dollars. And then as they start doing work, he was like, okay. But then he started finding out some other things. You go into the neighborhood, and then the guy who was running the school, guess what? He wanted to control the school. Um, they're building the school for this guy because it's going to be his school, right? But then this guy didn't trust Tim. So you know what? He, he, in, the, in the after he would spend a day at work, Tim, when he's down there, he would just wander around the town. And this guy didn't trust him, so you know he did. He had a guy follow him. He had a guy follow him around. Uh, Tim just thought, "I'm just going to explore the, the neighborhood." And he goes, "This guy's following me. Who the heck is this guy?" And then when he confronted this guy who owns the school, "Why is this person following me around?" You know what he said? He said, "Well, um, well, he's following you around because you know I just want to make sure that we could ensure your safety." And you know what, Tim? He didn't consider that a piece of concern and of love and care for him. He considered that a threat. The guy was giving him a veiled threat, saying, hey, this is my turf, and you're stepping on it. And as Tim started to realize this, he's saying, you know, we're going to build this new building, and after it's over, how do we even know he's going to have a school in there? Maybe he'll use it to build things and be a factory and make money for himself. How do we even know that? Or maybe he will run a school, and then he'll raise the tuition really high because he'll have the best building, and then he'll exploit all the poor people around him. How do we know he's going to do that? So then Tim got really nervous. So he got his team together. He started talking to this person, and they don't trust each other. And then they wrote up this document and said, after we leave and have this building, you promise, you promise to run a school and not charge too much tuition. And then they realized, at the end of the day, this is just a piece of paper. There's no government. This is not even a contract. There's no government that's, gonna, that's like making sure the schools are doing their job. There's, no, there's nobody watching this guy to make sure he doesn't exploit his neighbors. There's, there, there's, we just came in, and we used our money and our smarts, and we built this thing. And after he said this, he goes, and he goes, and there were times we, right when we had this meeting with him and we realized this guy might rip us off after we left off. After we left, he said, I, I wanted to go home. I wanted to shut it down and go home. And so then Caitlin Kenny asks him this question. said, so why, why, are you, why did you stay? <laughs> you know what his answer was? He starts laughing and he goes, uh, be, because I I started. <laughs> because I started and I like to finish what I started, and that's why I'm still here. So even though he felt pessimistic that it wasn't it wasn't even going to work out, he's just doing it because he doesn't have something better to do. Now let me tell you something. I'm giving you this little picture, and now let me just apply it to us. This was Tim's critique. He says. We think we can go over there and just build something. We're interested in structures. We can build a structure for them. And then they'll just be better off, right? Let me tell you something. That is not what, that is not what the Bible would call incarnated, the word into the flesh. That's not incarnated. That's not going into their culture. If you really want to be in the mission to make it fly, we must be incarnated and we must go in as servants. He's saying we can just build a building. But actually, let me tell you something. It's not going to work. I can say this in a lot of different ways. Um, Let me make a little critique of of the Korean ministry that that, that planted this ministry. They said, we're going to have an English ministry in our church. If we give them a nice room, and if we give them all the equipment, and they have computers... And they have an overhead projector, and they have the drums, and they have the amps, and they have the microphone, and they have nice comfortable chairs to sit in. We'll have an English ministry, right? Will we? Will we? Will people see the glory if you just give them the building and the stuff? It didn't work. You know what it takes? It takes people whose heart is to say, I will go into the world of the second generation immigrant who doesn't see the glory of God in the Korean way. I'll go into that world so I can show them Jesus in their world. When I was listening to that podcast, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking every church in the world should listen to that podcast when they're thinking about doing short-term missions. Because you know what this guy was doing? He was just doing a secular short-term mission. (laughs) I mean, he's not doing it for Jesus. He's doing it for the good of mankind or something like that, right? For the good of mankind, I'm going to go to Haiti and do something good for them. It'll be like a a mission, short-term project, and then I come home. But actually, it doesn't work. And when we go off to Bishop, let me tell you, if we go there and we paint their building and we come home but we won't be in their relationship with them, it won't. We could fix their building. We could give them money. But they won't see the glory unless they see it in us, through us, because we've entered into their world, incarnated into their world, and loved them, walk with them, and figured out how to serve them so they could see that in us beats the heart of Christ. They don't see it. They're not going to see it in the building. They're going to see it as the, as the way it was, so that all might believe through him, through John, through us. That's the mission. It's an incarnated mission. And let me tell you something. Here in San Jose, this cross-cultural incarnational mission, it, San Jose, one of the reasons why San Jose is losing the gospel is the churches that have been strong. Let me just put this bluntly. The white churches in San Jose don't know how to reach Mexicans. The Korean churches in San Jose don't know how to reach Chinese folks. And then all the churches that are, you have Chinese churches, you have Mexican churches, you have white churches, but then you have, who knows how to reach Laotians? <laughs> who knows how to reach Native Americans? Or who knows how to reach the people because I don't know if I'm Native American or if I'm Laotian or if I'm white. I don't know. I don't know. I've kind of got a foot in all those worlds. Or the person who says, well, my mom is Mexican and my dad is Vietnamese, but I don't know if I'm American. I don't know if I'm American. You get it? The gospel must be incarnated, must go into the flesh. The word goes into the flesh of his world. And then through loving him, he could see the glory. That's the mission. And that's what our church exists for. Now, let me go to the final part of my message. A life of eternal worth. Um, uh, On New Year's Day, I and a couple other people from the EM, we drove eight hours. (laughs) We drove eight hours to go to Bishop. And we picked up one kid. Here's what we did. We visited a certain number of people who were Native Americans. We brought them a gift. We prayed with them. We encouraged them. We only had a certain number of hours to be there. We just showed them our love. We picked up one kid who got saved through our ministry to the Paiutes out in Bishop, at their, on their reservation. We had one kid who wanted to go to our youth retreat. He says, I'll go. I'll get in the car eight hours with you, even though I've never been to San Jose, and that's like going to the moon. San Jose's the moon to this kid. You understand? He wanted to go so bad that he begged his parents. He's a Christian, but his parents are not Christians. His parents know there's darkness on their reservation. Let me just, sh- just share with you a little bit about um, the Browns. This is where I'm talking about Sean Brown and his family. Um, the, the, this is, Sean is their youngest Sean, they are incredibly proud of Sean, and they should be. Sean is a terrific kid. He's 14 years old. He's a star basketball player. This kid wakes up at like 5 a.m. to take shots. He's like, I don't know, the Native American Larry Bird or something, okay? I mean, he wakes up at 5 a.m. to dribble and shoot basketball. He's a straight-A student. He's a humble kid. He's a smart kid. He has a heart that when he grows up, he wants his people, he wants there to be a renewed life on his reservation. That's, that's what he wants. I mean, that's a special kid. But he knows once he hits 14, 15, 16, all his peers who are depressed, growing up in broken homes, they're going to say, we're sad. We are depressed. Why don't you come drink with us? Why don't you do drugs with us? Why don't you drop out of school? Why do all that school stuff? There ain't no future. So it's not just it's this. It's just that just life. It's like for them, they don't even think that they're gonna have 80 years in their life. A number of them thinking I may die in prison. That's my life. That's darkness. We draw we drove eight hours. From a man-centered point of view, it looks stupid. Why would, you drive, why would you take four guys, drive eight hours, that's a lot of money and gas, to pick up one kid and visit a few people? Because that's not building structures. You know what that is? That's entering into their world. It's incarnational. Um, so there was a time, Jin, Kim, and I were sitting in the Browns' living room. We were talking to Sean's dad. And then Sean's dad, amazing to me, he started to open up. And he said, this has been a really hard, 2013 was a really hard year for us. We lost our son. And I think this was his way of saying to me, look, I'm really afraid to let you take my youngest son because one of my other sons died last year. He died of a drug overdose. He goes, And he said to me, he goes, I don't know who's in charge. And he's talking about like, his guy. He goes, somebody out there is in charge. Because quite frankly, I'm not okay with it. I'm still angry at him. But Sean is a good judge of character, and we believe your people. He's talking about our church. You can see they're really good for him. And Sean loves them, loves you. And he believes that you have something for him. And we could see him becoming stronger in the kind of man that we want him to be. So we're letting him go, even though we're scared to death to let him go. That's incarnational mission, guys. I don't know what this is going to look like. So that's how I spent New Year's Day. (laughs) And then we drove another 1,000 miles in two days. It was 1,000 miles in two days, not just to pick up one kid but to take the one place where the gospel can shine the glory into the Paiute heart not to build structures but to shine the glory of Jesus into the Paiute heart just to close out the story I was listening to um, just listening to uh, Sean's dad and right when he was saying to me my heart went out for him and I wanted to pray for him I said, okay, it might be a little weird if I just, right here, I just met him. <laughs> 30 minutes into sitting in, into his uh, living room, I might wig him out and say, hey, can I, Mr. Brown, can I pray for you? <laughs> I said, okay, okay. okay. So, okay, Jesus. so I, was, I was listening to him, and I was listening to the Holy Spirit. So I was like, Jesus, how can I pray for him? I need to pray for him, and I, 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 want, I want him to receive prayer. Okay, so how about tomorrow? Okay, I'll pray for him tomorrow. <laughs> and so, you know, we went and slept in the hotel room. One of our guys, one of our youth kids slept over at their house they welcomed him to come sleep over at their house see that's into the flesh that's cross culture that's trust right and then the next day when we came to pick up our youth guy and Sean Sean's dad was waiting for us and he thanked us he looked a little nervous but I looked at him and I said thank you for letting us take your your boy don't worry he's in good hands and I asked him, can I pray for you? And he said, yes, please, yes. And he bowed his head. And I prayed into all his wounds that Jesus would bind up his wounds. I don't know. I pray that the Lord would use that prayer. I pray that Sean would be a new light into his people and the Browns would be saved. And in a thousand years from now, when I go have lunch with Sean, see, this is the preparation of a life of eternity shining into this world. That's the missional gospel life. Something like that. And you don't have to drive a thousand miles to Bishop. You could do it right here in your neighborhood, too. And that's what we want to do. The gospel missional life where the word comes into the flesh and we see his glory let's pray Lord I pray for the Browns what a tremendous loss to lose their son and to lose him to drug overdose I pray Lord um We wouldn't depend on structures. We would depend on the gospel and your spirit. We would depend on much more powerful tools like love and humility and faith and prayer and generosity which all flows from Jesus. I pray that this is a life that we would chase after. Make us like Rick Warren. Make us like John the Baptist. And may your gospel make us like John the Baptist and turn back the incurvatus of the soul, of our souls. And make us live and stand up and not curved in on ourselves. Standing up and wandering and running because we see the glory of Jesus. Just as Adam saw the glory of you, God, as he ran around in the garden that you would make us an odd and wonderful people seeing the glory of Jesus as we share of him as we break into different cultures say I will love you I will hurt with you I will go to you and share with you my Jesus would you give us his heart give us his heart Lord In Jesus' name.